everybody, how's it going? This is Hub, and welcome back to another episode of Tighten Up the Defense, a podcast that would likely benefit from a tagline. As I believe I just mentioned, my name is Hub, and boy oh boy, do we have a show for you. That's actually not a rhetorical question. We've got a whole lot of something here for you, but whether it counts as a show, well, that remains to be seen. You see, from the beginning, this episode was beset with technical difficulties, scheduling difficulties, weather difficulties, Corey accidentally reading the wrong issue difficulties, and perhaps most relevant, having to record remotely at the last minute after I had already made all of the Manhattans for Corey and I to drink, so me drinking all of those Manhattans by myself during recording. Difficulties. Seeing as I haven't yet faced the inevitable editing difficulties that these previous difficulties would almost certainly result in, and due to the aforementioned Manhattan difficulties, I have virtually no recollection of what might or might not be in this show, I'm a little curious to find out what we got here. So, tell you what, without any further ado, let's, uh, do this. Today's synopsis rhyme is submitted by Chris O'Connor. Chris's rhyme is particularly timely as this episode is scheduled to drop the day before February 14th, which most of you probably know as Discount Candy Eve. But the date February 14th is relevant for another reason. It is the birthday of the state of Oregon. <clears throat> the state of Oregon's been all nonstop since American settlers and French trapper accomplice hit up the Union and it decided to adopt us. It's got rivers and mountains with amazing optics, but from the Columbia South to the Calmiopsis, nothing's as beautiful as Hub's weekly synopsis. Aww. Thanks, Chris. Giant-Sized Defenders, number three. January, 1975. Games Godlings Play. Plotted by Steve Gerber and Len Wein and Jim Starlin. Scripted by Steve Gerber. Drotted by Jim Starlin. Inkted by Dan Adkins and Don Newton and Jim Mooney. Lettered by Charlotte Jenner. Colored by Glynis Wein. And edited by Roy Thomas. Wow, with that many creators working on a single story, it's bound to be coherent. Defensive lineup. Doctor Strange. The Incredible Hulk. Namor the Submariner. Valkyrie. Nighthawk. And Daredevil. Daredevil, a.k.a. Matt Murdock, is hanging around the rooftops of New York, just low-key brooding and smelling stuff when a familiar scent wafts into the range of his souped-up super-nostrils. Smells like jet fuel and unchecked privilege. Hmm. Daredevil correctly assumes that the aroma of aviation affluence must be emanating from billionaire-do-well-bird enthusiast Kyle Richmond, a.k.a. Nighthawk. So, the horn-headed hero sucker-punches Kyle in the tummy and hooks a grappling hook around his legs. Hooray! Okay, in Daredevil's defense, the last time the two colorfully clad crime fighters collided, Kyle was still a supervillain. Nighthawk explains that since their last encounter, Kyle's bad guy buddies decided to try to destroy the planet. Kyle thought that that was going a bit too far, which makes him a superhero now. Whatever. 
Matt is initially unconvinced, so Kyle drags the sightless scarlet swashbuckler high into the air above the city skyline and is like, Look, I'm a good guy now, and I've been hanging out with a group called the Defenders. We need your help saving the world. You have to agree to help us, but it has to be your choice. Now agree that you'll join us, and that you reach that decision on your own, of your own, uncoerced free will, or I'll drop you and let you plummet to your death, okay? Yeah, that seems pretty consistent with Kyle's understanding of the concept of consent. Daredevil reluctantly agrees to lend a hand, and as soon as he does so, the two conspicuously garbed combatants find themselves transported to a giant chessboard that is floating in space. At least it looks like a chessboard. I guess all we know for sure is that it's black and white checkered tiles, so it could be a giant floating checkerboard, or possibly just a floating floor of one of those 1950s-themed diners. Already standing on the displaced levitating surface are Doctor Strange, Valkyrie, Namor, and the Hulk. Daredevil takes a minute to describe and then introduce himself to each of the defenders. Then he notices the giant disembodied head that is bobbing above them, yelling condescendingly. So much for those super senses, eh? The giant floating head belongs to a being of near unimaginable cosmic power, who has blue skin, a receding hairline with a pronounced widow's peak, and tufts of white hair that stick out of the side of his head like Bozo the Clown. Also, he's an asshole. So you might think he's one of the Guardians, those little blue jerks that gave the Green Lanterns their powers, but nope. This balding blue cosmic-powered asshole with a pronounced widow's peak has a different grandiose name starting with the letter G. It's the Grandmaster. He's taller than the other blue cosmic assholes. The Grandmaster is a nigh-omnipotent inveterate gambler who bops around the universe amusing himself by making bets that fuck with people's lives. A little while ago, he bumped into a sentient robot that Dr. Doom invented to help him bet on sports or kill superheroes or something. The robot is named the Prime Mover, but I'm going to call it Gambletron 3000. Gambletron 3000 was programmed to accurately predict the outcome of any sporting event. And kill Nick Fury. And maybe blow up the world? Anyway, Gambletron and the Grandmaster decided to play a game where each of them chooses six individuals and then makes them fight each other in various neutral arenas. The last time Grandmaster played a game similar to this, he used Nighthawk and his felonious former friends the Squadron Sinister as his pawns. Kyle and his crumbum cronies were ignominiously defeated. So, naturally, when the balding blue better had a chance to play again and could choose anyone in the universe, he figured he'd go with the losing team from his last attempt. The only problem with this plan, apart from the obvious, was that Nighthawk was the only member of his former team that wasn't either dead or dimensionally displaced or sealed in a glass snow globe and shot into space or whatever it was that happened to the Squadron Sinister this last time. When the Grandmaster learned this, he asked Kyle if he knew any other super people who might fit the bill, so the beleaguered billionaire do well recommended the rest of the Defenders and the other hero he had most recently encountered, Daredevil. Once the heroes have been assembled, Grandmaster explains that if Gambletron wins the contest, he intends to wreck the planet and then turn it over to a team of jerkholes that he has assembled to fight the Defenders. If the Defenders win, Grandmaster intends to fuck off because the Earth is stupid and boring and he's got better things to do than to hang out there. The game is pretty simple. They are to be split into teams of two and transported to a neutral planet where they'll fight a team of two of Gambletron's champions to the death. The rules are, there are no rules. Want to guess how many holds are barred? Lots? Some? Three? No, you are way off. There are no holds barred. 
None. Our heroes aren't crazy about being the playthings of a godlike being in his quest to win a gentleman's bet against a killer robot, but they guess that having the fate of the world in the hands of an indifferent, condescending blue asshole is preferable to having it ruled by an actively hostile, sentient version of George Michael's sports machine. So, go Team Grandmaster, I guess. Hey, it's a two-party system. What can you do? Now let's get right to the action. Valkyrie and Nighthawk are sent to a desolate world that has a bunch of pointy rocks and is shrouded in a purple mist. It's a real bummer of a planet. Neither of them seem too stoked about their locale, but on the plus side, Val has her flying horse Aragorn with her. So, that's nice. Kyle complains that he doesn't like it there, but the affluent aerialist whining is interrupted by the arrival of he and Val's opponents. A shrieking purple man-bat attacks Nighthawk and tries to bite him, while Val finds herself the victim of an aerial assault by a four-armed demon wearing a viking hat and riding a bat-winged pegasus that has one of those pointy barbed tails that cartoon devils always seem to have for some reason. The dope-ass heavy metal album cover of a steed-slash-rider combo attacks Val, but the sorcerously Scandinavian swordslinger gives approximately the same amount of fucks as the number of holds that are barred in this encounter, which, as we have previously established, is none. She cuts the four-armed demon's head off. Damn! The demon-looking dude catches his head out of the air and jams it back on top of its neck hole. Okay, I don't want to praise the quasi-demonic beast that's trying to kill Valkyrie, but that is pretty badass. Val is momentarily taken aback by her foe's de-decapitation. Recapitation? But she quickly recovers and has the epiphany that her true enemy is not the four-armed combatant, but the four-legged one. The bat-winged horse is the one who has been running the show and merely wearing his rider as a particularly garish hat. Armed with this knowledge, Val flings her magic sword dragon fang through the heart of the evil airborne equine, killing it instantly. Hooray? I mean, I'm glad Valkyrie won, but it seems weird to cheer for horse murder. Nighthawk isn't doing super great against the purple man-bat-looking dude, but... Once he figures out that the shrieking purple menace is using echolocation, that helps him somehow figure out a way to ram the guy into the side of a rock formation. The collision appears to be fatal. As the rodent reprobate plummets to the ground, Nighthawk and Valkyrie are teleported back to the flying chessboard, where they are congratulated on their victory by a smarmy grandmaster. Gambletron is all like, Beep, boop, what the fuck, devil horse and flappy should have won, beep, boop. Grandmaster just smirks. And we move on to round two. Namor and Daredevil find themselves on a shitty volcano planet. Good thing the Submariner is wearing that puffy vest that Reed Richards made him that keeps him all soggy, or he'd get dehydrated in like a second. Our heroes are suddenly ambushed by a giant alligator man and a sentient one-eyed tub of goo. The goo sprouts some tendrils which grab at Daredevil. The horn-headed hero is thrown off by the fact that the volcano planet is loud and stinks like farts, which fucks up his super senses something fierce. While the Crimson Crusader is distracted by the planet's flatulent aroma, the tub of goo drags him over to a geyser and burns him to death. Well shit, the Prince of Abslantis isn't faring much better. The Alligator Man, who looks kinda like if Albert from Pogo started doing that P90X workout, managed to rip Namor's vest, and now our pointy-eared protagonist isn't feeling so hot. Or rather, he's feeling very hot. 
As the Atlantean Avenger slowly dries out, growing weaker as he does so, the ripped reptile starts pummeling him with his muscly tail. After a few minutes, the savage scion of Atlantis has been beaten to death. Dang! Back on the floating game board, which I gotta say they don't seem to be using for any kind of gameplay, so maybe it is just a 50s diner floor after all, Gambletron smugly gloats. Beep boop! And we're on to round three. Doctor Strange and the Hulk find themselves on a planet populated by extras from medieval times that we are told Grandmaster has just summoned into existence. Since all of the peasants have newly created memories and backstories, you'd imagine that their presence would figure pretty heavily into the strategy of this tussle. Nope. As soon as Steve and Hulk show up, the newly minted faux feudalists flee, without so much as a perfunctory, Can'st I refill your goblet with more Diet Pepsi, my lord? A tiny little yellow alien shows up and introduces himself as Grot the Manslayer. Grot has two antennas protruding from the top of his skull and is clad only in a blue diaper. He is adorable. Grot starts telepathically slapping the shit out of the Hulk. Before Steve can intervene on behalf of his Emerald Amigo, the displaced doctor finds himself under attack by a one-eyed cyborg who appears to be half man, half flying desk. The monocular menace introduces himself as Korvac and informs the surprise sorcerer that he is from 1,000 years in the future and that his futuristic desk butt is programmed to scientifically counter any spell that Steve can summon. The two fight to a standstill, magic and science canceling each other out until Steve concocts a cunning plan. He levitates over to the desk man and punches him in the face. A KO'd Korvac falls to the ground and smashes his desk butt into pieces. Hooray! Steve ruminates for a second on how good he is at punching. Then he walks over and asks Grot where the Hulk is. The diminutive diaper do-batter says, Oh, he's under this big pile of rocks and stuff that I used my antenna, which incidentally are the source of my telekinetic powers, to heap on top of him. I figure the big green galoot is probably dead now. Yes, sir, I did a pretty good... At this point, the little yellow guy stops talking, because the Hulk has just reached out one hand from under the rubble and used his index finger to flick Grot, sending the telekinetic Teletubby hurtling into a stone wall and breaking his aforementioned antennae. With both of their adversaries defeated, Steve and the Hulk are declared the victors, and are blinked back onto the floating cosmic diner floor. Hooray! Gambletron is apoplectic, having lost the contest. He goes, Beep! Boop! This is bullshit! Does not compute! Beep! Boop! Then his robot brain melts or something. Hooray! Grandmaster is so happy that he won that he decides to resurrect the defenders who died in battle, which is, I guess, a thing he can do. Hooray! Our heroes are like, So, I, uh, I guess you'll be fucking off and headed back into space now, like you, you said you would, huh? Grandmaster replies, well, you see, the thing is, you guys actually seem pretty cool, so I thought I'd hang around for a while and, you know, enslave you and use you as my personal stable of gladiators. Neat, huh? The defenders, by and large, do not think that this sounds particularly neat. They move to attack the big blue jerkwad who they just witnessed summon an entire populated planet into existence on a whim and then resurrect Daredevil and Namor from the dead. It doesn't go great. After he instantly defeats the heroes by distractedly raising one finger and sends them all flying, the Azure asshole notices that Daredevil didn't take part in the attack. 
When asked why he refrained from participating in the assault, the sartorially satanic superhero responds, I've got an idea. How's about we go double or nothing? See, I'll flip this metal disc that I just swiped off of your malfunctioning robot buddy, and heads, the Earth goes free. Tails, you get the Earth and the Moon. What do you say? Intrigued, the Grandmaster agrees. Wait, he does? I mean, even putting aside the fact that unless I missed a couple of issues, I'm pretty sure Matt Murdock does not in fact own the moon. The moon is like 27% the size of the Earth. That's not double or nothing. That's like one and a quarter or nothing. What the fuck? Anyway, Daredevil uses his super senses, which apparently, much like basic math skills, is something that the Grandmaster doesn't know about, to affect the trajectory of the disc, ensuring that the makeshift coin lands heads up. Grandmaster honors his deal and fucks off, teleporting our heroes back to Steve's Sanctum Sanctimonious. Hooray! Then we get a reprint of a story from Submariner Comics number 38. February 1955. The World Destroyers. Written by Bill Everett, drotted by Bill Everett, inked by Bill Everett, lettered by Bill Everett, heck, probably catered by Bill Everett. Defensive lineup. Namor! The Submariner is feeling conflicted. On the one hand, he hates us stupid surface dwellers and wants to destroy us all. Fair. But, on the other hand, he's pretty fond of his pal Betty Dean, and he'd prefer not to kill her if possible. What to do, what to do. Namor decides to share this dilemma with Betty. Turns out that while deep down she may be flattered by the Atlantean prince's affection for her, she isn't totally sympathetic to his plight. On the whole, she'd rather that us stupid surface dwellers not be exterminated. So selfish. She tells her bloodthirsty buddy, Look, how's about a compromise? You want to kill all the humans? I don't want you to kill any of the humans. Why don't you kill some of the humans? Intriguing. Go on. Betty continues, There's this group of douche lords calling themselves the Fatalists, and they built a death ray that they're trying to sell to all the governments around the world. We know it works because they used it to murder a bunch of horses, see? So far, every government, even the super evil ones, have been like, No way, guys, a device that kills people? That is just plain wrong. But it's only a matter of time before somebody takes them up on it. Why don't you kill those surface dwellers? At first, Namor is like, no way! If they get all the humans to kill each other, that would be rad! Less work for me. I'm not crazy about the whole horse murder thing, but I guess technically horses dwell on the surface, and therefore they would have ended up on my to-do list sooner or later. Betty's like, what the fuck, Namor? What if they decided to kill you and your people? What then, asshole? The Submariner replies, I'll swim away. Duh. Betty tells him that if he won't budge on the whole destroy the surface dwellers thing, then maybe he'd better get out of her apartment. Sheesh, some people are so touchy. After he leaves, Namor starts to rethink things. If these fatalists can build a death ray, then maybe eventually they'll develop, oh, I don't know, boats. Maybe he'd better kill the fatalists after all. Yeah, you get those stamp-collecting dipshits. Oh, wait, that's philatalists. Well, they're probably his enemies, too. I mean, those stamps would get all soggy underwater, which means they're probably surface dwellers. I hate surface dwellers. 
While the feisty young prince is sitting on the shore, internally debating the comparative merits of death rays and stamp collections, a group of gangster-looking guys come up to him, introduce themselves as the fatalist, and shoot him with a death ray, apparently killing him. Jeez, this is a tough issue for horses and namors. With the Submariner out of the way, the Fatalists move on to phase two of their evil plot. Kidnapping the son of the Prime Minister of Honduras and blackmailing him into forcing his government to purchase their evil device. Oh no! With notorious military powerhouse Honduras behind them, who could possibly stop these Fatalists? Fortunately, the Prime Minister of Honduras is like, Eh, I can make another kid if I have to. No deal. The gangster-slash-scientist-slash-global-extortionists are about to blast their hostage with their fancy ray gun when Namor jumps out and punches the shit out of them. Hooray! But wait, I thought those guys killed the Submariner. Okay, but here's the thing. Get this. They didn't. Ha-ha! <laughs> what a twist! Turns out that the blast only knocked Subby out for a second, but then he fell into the water and got better. The Avenging Son of Atlantis disarms the Fatalist and then shoots them with their own ray guns. Hooray! Once they are shot, the death ray peddling punks turn into ghosts and float back home to Pluto. Because they were evil aliens from Pluto this whole time. Yeah, well of course they were. In retrospect, I suppose that was obvious. Namor returns the young boy to his dad, the Prime Minister of Honduras, then scoops up all the death rays the evil scientist alien ghost gangsters left behind when they floated back home to Pluto. The Submariner reckons he can use those weapons in his war against us stupid humans, but when he tries to test the device by shooting at a nearby shark, nothing happens. It turns out that if the evil Plutonian science ghosts aren't around anymore, then their guns don't work. Oh, that old chestnut. Better luck next time, Namor. Maybe you can still kill those stamp collectors we were talking about earlier. Oh, unless the stamp collectors are secretly werewolves from Mercury or something. Damn philatelist werewolves from Mercury. I am so sick of their shit. Then we get to our final story. It's a reprint from Strange Tales number 120, May 1964. House of Shadows. Written by Stan Lee, drawn by Steve Ditko, lettered by Sam Rosen. Defensive lineup. Doctor Strange! There's a haunted house that's been creeping everyone out, so a TV reporter decides to spend the night in it. A big crowd gathers around outside to see what happens. Sensing that something supernatural is going on, Doctor Strange decides to check things out as well. When the reporter stops broadcasting, Steve decides to head inside of the haunted house and see what's going on. He calls upon the omnipotent Oster to shove the locals to the ground. Sheesh. I applaud your restraint in not calling upon the hoary host of Hogoth to pull their pants down, or the vapors of Valpor to call them fat. When Steve is done using his weird and eldritch powers to bully looky-loos, he starts poking around inside the house and finds that this is not, in fact, a haunted house. Well, of course not. That would just be superstitious nonsense. No, no, no. This is an evil extra-dimensional ghost that just happens to be shaped like a house. Obviously. I mean, Hockham's razor and whatnot. Steve convinces the house to form a face on the living room wall that looks like a butthole with eyes. 
He forces the butthole-faced entity to puke up the TV reporter and then banishes the ghost house to the dimension it came from, never to be seen again. Well, not until Rom the Space Knight number five, anyways. The end. Hooray! And, unfortunately, my brother Corey had misunderstood the slogan for Dairy Queen, Grill and Chill, and thought that it was Krill and Chill. So, on a very, very chilly day, which it is in this uh, February weather we're experiencing in the Northwest, he dressed up like a piece of krill and subsequently was eaten by a giant space whale. So, from within the belly of the space whale, he has been able to correspond with us telephonically. Corey, how are you doing? I'm okay. I'm okay. And I didn't dress up like a piece of krill. I dressed up like like a, the whole thing. Oh, okay. That makes more sense. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, I don't know. I've been better, to be honest. Well, watch out for those digestive enzymes. They can be a real bear. That's true. I hear. But yeah. space whale notwithstanding, we have a lot of comic book to get to. So, what did you think of this giant size issue of the Defenders? Well, the name is apt. It was giant. The Defenders bit was pretty fun. Yeah, honestly, I found all the bits pretty fun. There is an awful lot of comic book going on. Uh, Yeah, the Defenders bit had three different plotters and three different inkers and a whole lot of crazy nonsense going on. And yeah, the backup stories I found to be a real treat. Namor at his Namoriest and Steve at his Steviest. Absolutely. Those are both accurate statements. And I was happy that those are the two kind of backup stories because, you know, there are some parallels that that make Namor and, and Doctor Strange fun characters to appreciate, but also give a hard time to. I would say, though, that this issue had a lot more horse murder than I was expecting. Well, I don't know if that was really a, a horse. Well, okay, Val killed that one evil alien space horse, and then those dudes from Pluto just straight up murdered a horse as a demonstration. No, I guess I was just thinking of the first, like, the demon horse thing, because, I mean, that, like, was a whole separate creature. I mean, it was horse-shaped. Yeah, it was shape, evil space horse. Yeah, it looked like a horse, but it looked like a horse being ridden by a... Um, how would you describe that guy? Bad guy, Ooh, for sure. Uh, yeah, I would say like a undead Viking D&D miniature. Yeah, kind of like a Skeletor vibe, but not exactly the same aesthetic. No, like kind of a uh, 80s metal album cover from space. Yeah. That kind of thing. An extreme Molly Hatchet anti-hero bad guy. Right, that a evil space horse is basically just wearing as a hat. It's a clever hat. It's a very tricky hat from a very tricky space horse. I was shocked to see the decapitation of that space horse hat man (laughs) creature. (laughs) Indeed. That's the first time we've seen this in the comics. And then you're like, oh, my God, I can't believe I just saw that. And then you realize, well, oh, mean, it's it's fine, because he was just a made-up, like, an illusion guy. Yeah, Val doesn't use her sword for very much slicing. It's mostly just knocking unconscious with the flat of. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, Dragon Fang earns its keep in this one. 
slices that head clean off just like it was a troublesome bulldozer. Steamroller? Steamroller. Was it a steamroller that she cut in half before? I recall it being a steamroller. It probably was. Let's dive into the main story here and talk about the Defender. To refresh everyone's memory, when we hit a giant-sized Defenders issue, we break it into sections. First, we're going to cover the main Defenders story, and then we're going to cover the backup stories, and then we'll do the minutiae. And for each of those three segments, I have prepared Manhattans for us both. But you got eaten by that space whale, so I'm going to have to drink our Manhattans. That is such a bummer, man, because you make a good Manhattan, and the only thing I could find in this space whale belly is some uh, Lagunitas uh, Super Cluster IPA, which is pretty good stuff, but it's not a Manhattan. It's not three Manhattans. Or you know what? I'm going to take the bullet for the team and be drinking for two in this episode, so I would like to apologize in advance. My first Manhattan is a breakfast Manhattan. I have themed them for different meals. As we all know, the breakfast Manhattan is the most important Manhattan of the day. So this is made with Irish whiskey and a drop of maple syrup and some coffee liqueur and a squeeze of a satsuma and a bit of its peel as zest. It is a little bit on the sweet side, but uh, very, very drinkable. That sounds delicious. It's pretty good. My beer is hoppy and beery. Hmm. Well, let's dive into this Defender story. What'd you think of it overall? Overall, pretty good. I like that it starts with Daredevil immediately assuming that uh, Kyle's up to his old garbage as a bad guy. There were some twists and turns. I didn't expect, you know, the death of some of our heroes. Yeah, I wasn't expecting any death at all, but there was rather a fair amount of it. We get the Grandmaster, who I think a lot of people are probably just familiar with as... Jeff Goldblum from the Thor Ragnarok movie, and I did have a tendency to hear him with the Jeff Goldblum voice when I was reading this. Oh, no. You didn't hear him with the Grandmaster Flash voice? Oh, no, that would be a much better Grandmaster. What do you think of the Grandmaster? Had he been someone you had encountered before? I know they mentioned him in the Nighthawk flashback scenes in, like, Defenders 14 or whatever, when they introduced Nighthawk to the team. But uh, other than that, no. any, uh, what'd you think of him? I thought he was a, one of those good, you know, I guess you could say omnipotent, like he's extremely powerful He's bad guys. I feel like he's omnipotent and omniscient, but still basically a dumbass, which is a weird combination. I do like that he, he's a real play-by-the-rules kind of uh, bad guy, though. Is he, though? Because he had said he was going to leave the Earth alone, and then... After he wins, then he's like, nah, I'm not going to leave the Earth alone. You guys are great. Well, I mean, he didn't stipulate the rules of the game or that he had to leave the Earth alone. He said the Earth was his prize. He could, you know, do what he wanted. Yeah, but he said he was going to leave it alone, and then he reneged on that deal. Like, that had been the deal he had made with the Defenders. Oh, yeah, yeah. He's kind of a jerk, but uh, I think he respects the rules of the, the game itself. That game had some confusing rules, too. I mean, it's a really straightforward game. What was confusing to me was the setup for the game. Like, there are, like, mini figurines of the Defenders, and there's, like, a giant chessboard, and this very elaborate setup, and then... The game itself has absolutely nothing to do with that. They just send them to different planets and make them duke it out with some aliens. Yep, that's it, how it goes. It seemed kind of like they were, like, setting up this elaborate, like, mousetrap-like board and then, 
like, okay, now that we've got all of the pieces on the board and we've got the little Rube Goldberg device set up, we're playing Bloody Knuckles. Yeah, it was kind of a mousetrap uh, Bloody Knuckles situation. And the person that he is squaring off against is the Prime Mover that was invented by Dr. Doom to make up games and gamble with people. I think he first showed up fighting Nick Fury. Kind of a weird invention. Are you familiar with the phrase Prime Mover? You know, I feel like I should be, and I was going to Google it, but then I just didn't. It's an engineering thing, I think, that I'm not completely familiar with, but I think it's a device that creates energy is called a prime mover, which is weird that it's associated with gambling, and I was a little bit confused about that, and then I remembered watching this episode of The Twilight Zone that was called the prime mover because there was a dude in it who could do telekinesis, and he used that to cheat at gambling for his friend, who was an inveterate gambler and that guy was played by jack klugman but that was called the prime mover i think because he created energy with his mind but then i think this was referring to that so kind of a circuitous reference but an interesting one and it's actually a really good episode of the twilight zone too so those are the main villains that we get in this story now if i were to tell you that one of the villains in this story was the main focus of a 11 part avengers crossover Who would you guess that would be? Oh, man. I would guess it would have to be the Grandmaster himself because he's kind of running it, but I really hope it's like that that little dude with the antenna. Close. It is the little dude with the antenna's partner, Michael Korvac. No way. The the science dude? Yeah, the guy who's like if a guy was a centaur but with a desk. Mm -hmm. Half man, (laughs) half desk. Yeah, it's like like if uh, Zeus dressed up like a desk in Greek mythology. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. A flying desk. Yeah, this is his first appearance, and all of the bad guys in this, I think, end up being a group called the Minions of Menace, I think. Oh, that's pretty good. And they were designed to be throwaway characters, but Michael Korvac ends up getting, I think, because one of his lines of dialogue says the year that he was born, and it was 29-something or other. It stuck in somebody's mind that, oh, that's when the Guardians of the Galaxy are from. So we'll make him a Guardians of the Galaxy villain. So they created this whole backstory, and he ended up fighting a time-traveling Thor. And his deal was he was a collaborator with the evil space lizards, the Badoons. Oh. And he was a willing collaborator with them and helped them take over the Earth and was a real jerk. But then one day... He fell asleep at his control panel desk. And so they showed up and they're like, oh, well, we'll make sure that doesn't happen again. And they made him half fucking desk. What? Really? Yeah. Oh, man, that's harsh. Fucking the future needs an HR department so badly. (laughs) (laughs) I suppose so. Yeah, sleeping on the job has consequences, I guess. But it gets better than that. So after that happened... After this incident happened, they retconned it so that he lost on purpose to uh, in the Grandmaster's battle so that he could observe the Grandmaster and figure out how cosmic energy works. And so then when he goes back to the Guardians of the Galaxy time, he has figured out how to steal energy and shit. And he and the other dudes that are the evil space aliens in this try to blow up the sun, which dick move. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we need that. Yeah. That's how we get all of our best stuff. Wow. You know, like plants. Mm-hmm. Yep. I think that's pretty much it. But still, you know, plants are great. 
So he doesn't end up blowing up the sun, and he somehow ends up coming to Earth in our time. He pops in when Galactus is attacking, and he ends up stealing Galactus's energy and then becomes an omnipotent god and gives himself a less desky body and ends up fighting the Avengers for like 11 issues, and it's this whole to-do. But... It's such a weird, innocuous beginning for him that he just shows up randomly, gets punched out by Steve, and then goes home. Yeah, I I did appreciate the magic versus science thing they were playing with there in the in the conflict. I enjoyed that it was the magic versus science, and then that the solution to that is just like sneak up on him and punch him in the face. Yeah, yeah, if <laughs> and magic then he or dies science from it isn't working. <laughs> he just punch somebody and that's it i feel like later on when he gets all omnipotent and the avengers are struggling for like a year to defeat him i bet steve stopped by a couple of times and was just like did you try punching him Mm -hmm. i punched him and that worked out great uh maybe you could try punching you're probably not as good at punching as i am i mean i am Stephen Strange, the puncher supreme. Yeah, I love the panel in which that sequence of events takes place where he punches him and then he's like, ow, that really (laughs) hurt my hand. But then he looks at his hand. He's just like, I am so tough. There is a nice thing where he's like, these are the hands of a surgeon, not a puncher. But the procedure was a success. (laughs) Yeah, pretty good. That's great. Let's just go through and talk about the various battles that happen with the group that by and large becomes the Minions of Menace. Mm -hmm. We get the evil Space Horse versus Val. Yep. Pretty straightforward fight. Takes a little while. There's that weird scene where, uh, yeah, she cuts off the evil Space Horse's hood ornament's head. Mm -hmm. And then it's like, well, that's that. And then the dude catches the head. It's this really weird, surreal scene, and it's pretty fun to watch. But then she says something along the lines of, oh, I get it. What do you think her clue was that it was the horse that was driving the the toboggan? That I don't get. Like, the way she figures it out is because she's like, okay, like, I chopped the dude's head off. He caught his head. He stuck it back on his body. That's like a child who, I guess, decapitates their (laughs) doll and sticks the head back on. And she's like, wait a minute. That's my clue. She thinks kids are so much better at doll repair than they are. Yeah, but also just, like, maybe creepier, too. I mean, I did accidentally remove the heads from Star Wars figures, but that was just because they don't turn past 90 degrees. Oh, not like human heads do. Well, it's like I just wanted to see if he could look behind him. That just popped right off. I feel like children removing dolls' heads is pretty standard procedure. I feel like that happens a lot. I guess they're just curious it's not necessarily um well curious and want to make sure that it's not really an evil ghost or a robot that is talking to them it's just a prudent measure i think ah yeah i'm I'm pretty sure that like 80 percent of dolls are possessed by evil spirits so you want to make sure you got one of the good ones sure sure yeah okay doll head removal is a safety procedure I get it. So, yeah, Um, that doesn't answer our question, though. I don't know. So she's like... But she says something about, like, oh, well, it's that dude's so clumsy. He didn't seem that clumsy. He caught that head like it was a Hail Mary pass. That was pretty decent, I thought. Yeah, with one of his four arms, and the other arms are occupied with weapons and stuff. But, hey, good for her. She kills the evil space horse. Nice job, Val. We get Kyle squaring off against a purple man-bat-looking dude, and... He ends up figuring out that the thing's using sonar, 
and that sound doesn't travel as quickly as light, so he can be fast and sneak up on it, pretty much. Yeah, but I feel like his story falls apart, or his the way that he defeats the thing is he has a revelation, which, which right. you know, is maybe accurate, but then he's like, I'm going to fly through this little ring of rock that's too big for the Batman uh, thing. Man-bat, be fair. The man-bat to fly through. And then when Man-Bat crashes into the rock thing, then I, I win the fight. But if Man-Bat's using sonar to find his way around, he's probably going to know, like bats do, I assume, that they can't fly into something smaller than their body shape. Yeah, you'd think. I think maybe the reasoning is just like he's like, well, I'll just go fast. Maybe he was just shrieking really loudly the whole time he was doing it, and that was throwing the sonar off. Who, Kyle? Yeah. <laughs> He's like, oh, you scree? Okay, I can scree also. Yeah, I will just cry and yell. Ah. Uh, I think probably he was just crying and yelling at the top of his lungs the whole time. And that is often his fighting technique. And so they stopped bothering to illustrate it on a regular basis. Because it's just kind of taken for granted. Yeah, I think you're onto something, actually. Because in that, that fight panel where Kyle's looking super freaked out, all the screes are in green coming from the man bat. But then there's one big yellow one, and that kind of matches the yellow of Kyle's costume. Yeah, he's just screaming and yelling. Mm -hmm. So, I guess good job, Kyle? We have a lizard man fighting Namor, and Namor doesn't do so good. He doesn't, man. I thought he was really going to rally when he has his, you know, very Namor speech about, I'm super badass, I'm going to win, I have to win. Right. And then he just gets his butt kicked. I think one of the things that may have thrown him off is I counted and that lizard dude had 43 abs. I was just going to say. That guy had a 43 pack. Namor, I think, is used to being Prince of Abslantis, like having the best abs on the block. He's got the vest that shows just them off now. And I think it was just like, oh, what the fuck? I don't know how to deal with this situation. It has never come up that I have been in a situation where I don't have the best abs. And this dude has more than seven times the number of abs that I have. The ego will, will kill you. But I, yeah. to, be, to be fair, I mean, a third of those, at least, are on the lizard's tail. So, I mean, that's not really fair. Hey, abs and ab, man. I bet Namor is going to go home and figure out. Like, I bet if we saw him two issues later... I think he's quit the Defenders again by the time this came out. I think this was a one-shot deal, having Namor show up again. Mm -hmm. But I bet, I haven't read his solo series, but he probably went home and like found some special workouts, so he's now got just abs up and down his legs. <laughs> Maybe. I can't really picture that, but... Just abs on abs, man. He, he's got some special like micro dynamic tension workouts and... It's just all abs. Double A, man. Even his muscles have muscles. Uh-huh. And those muscles specifically are abs. Okay. Yeah, that was some crazy fight scenes. I love the scene in which he first punches the lizard thing, and it's careening off into the distance. But as it's doing so, showing off all of its abs, it mm -hmm. looks so amused. And like it's just going like, ah! That's just a crazy, crazy expression on that weird lizard thing's face. I don't know how to describe it because he looks angry and excited and happy all at the same time and maybe surprised. Yeah. Oh. Isn't that a funny picture? I feel like I've seen that expression before. I feel like it's like a, 
ah, I am overwhelmed by all of these things that I enjoy but are still a task for me. I feel like you might see that look if you went to, say, a Joann's or a Michael's and went to the yarn section and saw a certain type of person that is really into arts and crafts. <laughs> wow. They have so many different colored popsicle sticks. Oh, my God. I won't have time to make all of these cat's eyes, but I must try. Oh, my gosh. I have been to those places. I was looking for upholstery for the chairs that actually live in your house but i guess i did have a little bit of that there's just too much yeah i didn't even go near the popsicle sticks oh man good call i bet if you had taken a selfie of yourself at that time you would have looked a lot like that lizard man (laughs) possibly with a few less abs i'm not trying to cast shade but you know that's that's cool i'd I mean, now you've got the 43-pack, but I mean, at the time, I I don't know if you had quite the 43-pack. No, I was drinking more, and my diet wasn't as good. (laughs) Just had like a 27-pack. Oh, I don't know. I wouldn't be wearing Namor's outfit, let's just say that. (laughs) So, that lizard is goofy as hell. I think he's actually upstaged by whatever it is that Daredevil is dealing with. Yeah, the the weird tub of liquid goo that is fighting Daredevil. With the one eye. Yeah. All I kept thinking of is, did you ever see the Monty Python sketch about the blancmange playing tennis? Yes. That was what I kept yes, thinking I... of. The weird milk pudding thing from outer space that was playing tennis in that Monty Python sketch. Yeah, you showed it to me at your house. <laughs> I can't. I can't remember. It. The main thing that I remember from it is it that sketch had the line, Angus Podgorny, you're a stupid man. Yeah, that rings a yeah. bell. But uh, yeah, it just like a, yeah, like a weird piece of jello monster that's, uh, you know, I mean, this guy isn't playing tennis, but I get the impression he maybe could. One thing he can definitely do is kick Daredevil's ass. Yeah, Daredevil's bouncing around, doing all kinds of acrobatics, narrowly avoid getting skewered. For a while, and then he just kind of does. I kept expecting either him or Namor to launch some kind of last-ditch effort that almost works but kind of backfires at the last minute. Mm -hmm. And no, they just flat-out both got their asses kicked. Yeah, so... Daredevil's was pretty gnarly. He gets thrown into a basically of like a volcano's laser eruption. Uh-huh. Namor's death was freaking brutal. Yeah, well, he had a tear in his quilted vest. And that's it for our submariner. That's it for the submariner, but also like he loses moisture, he gets down, and then there's that series of panels where the lizard thing is beating him to death with his tail. Yeah. And the sound effect becomes more and more moist as he's beaten <laughs> yeah it's just a gross like it's like you it's very evocative of like he's getting beaten literally to a pulp yeah although i would still say that probably the most painful thing that that lizard did to him was have seven times as many abs i think that was where the battle was lost insult first injury follows indeed Are you familiar with the Fred theory of the universe? Man, I looked into it really quickly and I found the, the, what was it, the Mandrake something comic book that somebody whose name was Fred wrote in 1937, but I don't (laughs) think that that was relevant to Yeah, no, I found a couple of quantum theorists named Fred who were born in 1934, but I don't think that's it. I 
I think this is something that's just made up whole cloth or possibly I know that uh, Jim Starlin, who's the artist on this during the 70s, apparently was one of several creators at Marvel who considered it part of their job to do a bunch of acid and wander around New York. Um, <laughs> so this may be like an in-joke from one of those sessions. Uh, I know Steve Gerber was himself not into the psychedelics, but I'm just going to read this aloud. There is a theory that the Earth was created in 1934 by a cosmic entity known only as Fred, that all evidence of a past beyond that year are Fred's fabrications. Doctor Strange cannot help but recall that whimsical hypothesis as he and the Hulk reappear on a world where, save for the names and dates, it is true. What the fuck, dude? Yeah, I don't know. I, my research was really lazy and I was like, I'll usually figures this stuff out. <laughs> nah, I couldn't get to the bottom of this one. My suspicion is it's like just a weird thing that they made up and then we're just like, eh, if we treat this like it's a thing, why not? And I think it's great. It seems like just an in-joke that maybe is just amongst the creative team there that we're not privy to. Or maybe it's a thing. If you're familiar with the Fred theory, let us know, listeners, because I'm not. I don't know. I feel like I've read a fair amount of Robert Anton Wilson books, and this should have come <laughs> up by now, if that's a, yeah, a thing. I, honestly, this would be one of the tamer Robert Anton Wilson theories. Right? There's not a little person in a bear suit as a peanut butter mascot having oral sex so there, I mean, there's none of those things that i caught i mean maybe that is what the fred theory is in some way a reference to mm, maybe so <laughs> i yeah that threw me for do you remember a, that scene that i'm talking about from schrodinger's cat i don't um but uh, it, it doesn't surprise me i guess maybe it made a bigger impression on me than it did on you <laughs> On the world that is much like the Fred created world in that it is a brand new world that the Grandmaster just created, but that is fully populated and has characters that have their own history and backstories, which is kind of a like weird window window. Oh, wow. Yeah, the Grandmaster is totally omnipotent. On that world, we see that Doctor Strange is fighting the desk centaur, Michael Korvac. And the Hulk is fighting a tiny little Teletubby in a blue diaper named Grot. Grot the Manslayer. Yeah, that little Teletubby in a diaper is just kicking the shit out of the Hulk and grinning the whole time. And it's pretty fun. It is pretty fun. And I think this may be the first instance of what appears to be, I don't know how you'd call it, a reverse dick punch? So somebody punching with their dick? Yeah. On I didn't catch that. Page 31 at the top panel. That's the first time that Grot throws the Hulk really far away. Oh, yeah. <laughs> he just KO'd the Hulk with his dick. It sort of And it made a wham Wham. <laughs> Hulk's with his, just, his face. He's just, no. There's oh. a pro wrestler named Joey Ryan who... Uh, that's his thing. Oh, no. That's not... It's great. I'll send you some videos later. Okay. <laughs> yeah, that's a pretty good... That's a dick punch of a different color. <laughs> I suppose so. Yeah, those are the, the main fights that happen, and all except for the aforementioned Namor and Daredevil, the defenders win their fights. Mm -hmm. 
and then by winning apparently have granted the grandmaster dominion over the earth which they're not crazy about so daredevil is like all right buddy double or nothing that's a dangerous game it's also a totally nonsensical game wait the moon isn't worth the same as the earth well also how the fuck did daredevil get the moon if like grandmaster just decided he wanted the earth so he took it uh-huh. Do neither of them know what double or nothing means? Like, I guess he won control over the Earth from the Gambletron 3000. How does... I, I don't think it's about... How is the moon worth double the Earth? It's just... How the... does Daredevil get to just say, like, okay, tell you what, if you win, you also get the moon. It's, How does Daredevil it's... have the moon? It's non-conventional gambling rules. So what Daredevil is doing is he's just appealing to the Grandmaster's love of gambling. I feel like if you have that level of omniscience and omnipotence, gambling isn't really gambling. You know? You know the outcome. Mm, maybe that's why he's such a stickler for the rules. Or maybe he's just riding high on his, his victory over uh, the, ga- what the Gambletron. Rules allow, what rules allow Daredevil to grant somebody else the moon? That's like, this This version of Double or Nothing is just like, all right, you just won $500 from somebody else. So I'll tell you what, Double or Nothing. If you beat me at this, you can also have this third person's car. I was just going to use that example. Yeah, I get it. But Daredevil found an angle and it worked. Doesn't, all right. Doesn't really make sense. But, you know, thank goodness, because otherwise we'd all be pawns in some cosmic game yeah or would be owned by the gambletron who uh despite being from earth in its origin considers itself superior to any terrain there is a typo where it says terrain uh, i think it's terran. supposed to mean terran but yeah i like the idea that he's just like oh this robot thinks he's better than any rock or stream yeah that's pretty conceited he pretty thinks conceited. he's so much better than a pile of gravel oh that conceited robot Well, I am nearing the bottom of my breakfast Manhattan, so I think it's just about time to move on to lunch and the backup stories. Sound good to you? That sounds good to me. I will open up my backup same beverage. What is in your lunch Manhattan? The Lunch Manhattan is a classic Manhattan, much like these stories are classic reprints. It is standard Manhattan that is bourbon, Angostino bitters, and sweet vermouth, and an Amarano cherry, and just a couple of drops of cherry juice. It's a classic, and so are these tales. That is one of my favorite all-time cocktails. Mine too. And I gotta say, this Namor story is one of my favorite stories. So what do you think of the World Destroyers? How does comic art change so much? You know what I mean? <laughs> like between, when was this, 1955? And 1970, mid-70s, when we're reading the other Defender stuff, like the way that people are drawn is so crazy different. Well, there's also part of the convention here is that some of the characters are unfortunate ethnic stereotypes that are going on and they tend to be drawn more like caricature style like you would see on like a boardwalk rather than like i mean the way namor is drawn and what's her name betty like they're drawn pretty standard oh i see you mean like um the latin burt reynolds on page? yeah i'm still not seeing the burt reynolds thing Corey. i'm sorry <laughs> it's just because he has a mustache that's all yeah okay There's a lot going on in this comic in a very few pages, but mostly what there is is 
Namor being fucking Namor as hell. This dude is straight up longitude. He is all over the map. He's hanging out with his pal Betty, who's like his best friend. He has kind of a crush on her. And she's like, oh, these people have a crazy death ray that could destroy everyone on Earth. And he's like, oh, that's good. I love destroying everyone on Earth. Makes my job easier. And she's like, once they destroy all of the surface dwellers, they'll destroy you guys too. He's like, yeah, no fucking way. We're underwater. They can't go underwater. Mm -hmm. Uh, He's such a dick. And I love him so much. And then eventually he is just like, oh, wait, I guess maybe they could develop scuba gear. All right, I'll go thwart them. And yeah, and then he rescues a kid and then feels bad for rescuing a kid. Ah, I love Namor. I like that the one of the goons when he's trying to, after he rescues the kid, he's trying to take the gun away from the goon. The goon calls him a ghoul. And he responds by calling a man, the same, the guy that called him a ghoul, uh, stubborn. <laughs> Which doesn't seem like a great rejoinder, but I don't know. Well, when it's coupled with blasting him with a death ray, I think it works out okay. Those guys had it coming, man. That horse. Yeah. It looks like it's suffering. I mean, that is also on the U.S. government, dude, who when they show up and say, like, we've got a death ray. He's like, no, you don't. And they're like, all right, tell you what, let's go down to this stable where they're keeping horses that are going to be slaughtered for glue. And that is just kind of glossed over. And then they shoot the horse with the death ray and the horse dies. Here's my problem with this. I mean, obviously, I have a problem with the fact that they're (laughs) shooting a horse. (laughs) That's obviously the main problem. You know, I'm not a huge horse fan, but I'm definitely not a fan of horse murder. uh, Unless it's an evil space horse that has a D&D minifig as a hood ornament. Okay. Um, It's complicated. But but my problem outside of the horse murder aspect of this is they shop this death ray around to every government on Earth. And they're all like, oh, no, that is too powerful. We want no part of this. How is their death ray any different than a gun? Well, it killed a horse. (laughs) Yeah, so would a gun. I know. Like, that's the thing. Like, we developed this thing that can, if we point it and pull a button, it causes the person that we are pointing the thing at to die. Yeah, we've got those. Yeah, that technology is too powerful. Why is a death ray any worse than a gun? Hmm... And why would you give up the whole planet? Because like, well, we better sign this planet over to them. Why? They've got a gun. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's pretty weak. But I also like the fact that every nation on the planet, including nations that we are clearly supposed to think of as being evil, because much like the U.S. has them demonstrate the weapon harmlessly on some horses and murder them, this evil nation that has a made-up name, has the aliens demonstrated on political prisoners. So not great. But even that evil nation is just like, no, we want no part of this weapon. It is too powerful. And Neymar shows up and grabs one in each hand and starts shooting bad guys with it. And then it's like, all right, this is great. Now I can wipe out the planet. Mm-hmm. So yeah, every nation on the planet is just like, this is terrible. This weapon can't exist. And Neymar's like, I'll take two. Yep. Line up, all of you. It's the end of the road. <laughs> That's what he says. <laughs> Just, oh, my gosh. <laughs> and then you remember the story that he had with the were sharks who were eating everybody that then he killed all of, right? Were they from Pluto, too? Oh, uh, probably. I mean, that seems like a pretty good location for were sharks yeah. and gun 
merchants to come that from. place has a bad case of little planet complex. Mm -hmm. Or I guess not even planet anymore. Oh, is it back to not being a planet? I'm pretty sure it's not a planet anymore. Oh. I mean, don't shoot me with your death ray, Plutonians. Not my decision. I got nothing to do with this. Don't turn into a were shark and try to eat me. But I'm pretty sure that Pluto is no longer considered a planet. Careful, buddy. It's not the normal conciliatory tone you strike with, you know, our robot overlords. But I guess I fear our robot overlords a little bit more than I fear these uh, Plutonians with their but they, space gun. But, but they have guns. Oh, no! <laughs> well, not anymore, because Namor vaporized them, and as soon as he kills them, then their ghosts start to float back to Pluto, and that makes their guns not work anymore. This is some Bob Haney-level comic book nonsense bullshit, and I am 100% here for it. The way that Namor figures out that the guns don't work now that the Plutonians are ghosts that are floating back to their home planet is, much like they demonstrated it at the glue factory, he just starts shooting it at a killer whale that is swimming by, minding its own goddamn business. Not cool. Yeah. What the fuck, Namor? He lives in the ocean. Well, he can't sometimes. He lives in the ocean. He should know better. I mean, I guess there's a reason they don't call that thing just a regular whale, but Still, not cool, buddy. Not cool at all. What year did the movie Orca come out? Eh, it wasn't 1955, so that's not an excuse. Um, <laughs> it's a scary movie. That's all I'm saying. Maybe it got spooked. I love how, like, he rescues the kid and carries him on his back back to his dad and then says, I should thank you for refusing to deal with those barbarians. But if you'll excuse me, I've still got some work to do. Good luck to you. And then he flies off, and then it's like, I must have been out of my mind. I let Betty influence me. Well, I'll remedy that in a hurry. Now that I've got rid of those crazy spacemen, I've got all their death ray equipment to myself. I'll take all I can carry and destroy the rest. Then, look out world, judgment day's a-coming. And he's, like, caressing a gun and <laughs> looking super creepy when he thinks that. He rescues a kid and is nice to the kid's dad. And then is like, and now to blow up the world and kill every surface dweller on it. Mm -hmm. yeah, that's kind of his thing back then. Oh, yeah, but, hey, hey, know, hey. You know what? What? It's not a killer whale. It's a killer shark. Is it? Oh. Is that a kind of shark or does he just know that the shark is a killer? He knows the shark's like, a killer. That's not a classification of shark. That is like a shark who has been convicted of murder under deep sea law. Yeah, you can tell it's like got a It's got a, like a dorsal drop tattooed under bracelet. its <laughs> under its eye. <laughs> it's, I don't know. How do you tell a killer shark? But he knows I'm pretty sure they have teardrops tattooed under their eyes. Oh, uh, I just thought that was one for when they're how long they've been locked up. No, okay. no, no, that's, that's when they killed there. somebody in prison. That's when a shark kills somebody in prison. Um, <laughs> oh, man, that shark's out. <laughs> they get to, yeah, tattoo a little uh, teardrop under their under their gill. Oh, Corey, mm. the giant whale that ate you, that's not a shark, is it? I don't know, man. It all happened so fast. One minute I'm trying this girl suit on, and <laughs> next minute I'm stuck with this IPA instead of Manhattan. <laughs> uh, wait, you, you send me that screenshot. As you were being captured, I think you're safe. I don't think it's a killer shark. It did have a tattoo, but it was just the cat in the hat standing on a giant eight ball. <laughs> so you don't have a great whale on your hand, but it's not necessarily a killer whale. Okay. 
does have one of those tequila worms wearing a sombrero tattoo also, which <laughs> isn't great, but I think I'll be all right. Yeah. Just got to get out of this situation. <laughs> Any other thoughts on the Namor story? No, I think that, that covers it. I, I do like the old, like, I want to destroy the Earth Namor in some ways better than the I want to save people on the surface Namor. It's kind of a yeah, more interesting I, I like... character. I like that we get both in this issue. Throughout the Golden Age, he went back and forth between, like, he definitely started off as a supervillain. Then during World War II, he was just fighting the Axis powers. And, like, we saw that whole thing where he was working with the U.S.'s government to save that Arctic town. Now we're back to supervillain Namor, which I am definitely a fan of. Yep, pretty fun. Then we get the Doctor Strange backup story. House of Shadows. Now, you said you had a one-sentence synopsis of this story? Yeah, I did. Okay, let's hear it. I'll give it a shot. So you tell me if I missed anything. Doctor Strange uses magic to push people out of his way, and then he disappears a haunted house, but no one believes him. Yeah, that pretty much. I mean, you know, there's some details in there, but that's the main thing. I think the important part for both of us was that he used his magic powers to push people down. Yeah, he's like, he's like, oh, I gotta go into this house and save this dude. And these guys are like, hey, man, stop jostling. And he just basically says, I don't have time for you, people. I have not the patience to be frustrated by an insolent crowd. My task is before me. Uh, and then, yeah, he uses his powers to just shove them all down. I love that he's a... Uh, I have no time for explanations. I summon the spells of the omnipotent Oster. So he summons the powers of somebody who is omnipotent to push a bunch of, like, small-town hicks onto their asses. That is Doctor Strange. It is Steve at a strangest. I, this is classic Steve. I was amused. So I would sum this up kind of as, there are reports of a haunted house, but that's just superstitious nonsense. It's not a haunted house. You stupid yokels. It's just an evil alien from another dimension who is shaped like a house, who also has a face that looks like a butthole. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's not a, not a great look. I mean, I don't want to dwell too much on it. Uh, after last week's episode, I'm worried about us getting pigeonholed as a butthole cast. Um, but <laughs> the face of that house absolutely looks like a butthole. And those really Steve? just beaver butts, man. It's not like... Can you imagine how much strawberry flavoring you could get out of a butthole the size of a house? <laughs> <laughs> Fucking strawberries for years, buddy. Oh, man. Steve is missing out on the business opportunity of a lifetime. So when he goes into the house and he's just like, all right, come out. I know you're here. And then the house like giant wall, giant butthole face forms on the wall of the house. And he's like, you got me, Steve. They strike some kind of a deal. I don't know what the deal is. Because the deal ends up being that Steve just banishes it to another dimension and the house fucking hates that. Mm -hmm. But in order to get Steve to do that, the house was like, okay, I'll capitulate to your demands just as long as I get what I want. Mm -hmm. What did the house want? I think the house just wanted to be like left alone to kind of mess with the earth or something. Well, it doesn't get that because Steve banishes it to another dimension. But... That house does come back in an issue of ROM. 
What? Many, many years later. Yeah, in the 80s, turns out that house is just bumping around West Virginia. Rom ends up strolling into it. The house almost takes him over. Uh, Rom cups a light bulb in his mitten hand to charge himself up. Mm-hmm. And then Doctor Strange contacts him in a dream and is just like, Buddy, this house is bad news. And then he wakes up and once again uses his neutralizer to banish the house to limbo. Bang. And I think the house might show up again. But yeah, the old house of shadows. Sphincter face himself. (laughs) Yep. Uh, Old architecture ass house. (laughs) That's not a thing. No. Um, (laughs) Nope. I think it's like a tutor. Oh, right, right. <laughs> the style of the house. I, I'm trying to picture just Bob Vila on an episode of this old house. Just like, now you're going to want a stucco over this wall because it just looks like an asshole. You'll find that in a lot of your old uh, space houses. They'll uh, they'll have uh, an asshole wall. And you're, you're going to want to use a little bit of stucco give, and uh, just plaster Bob, over it. You're giving Bob Vila a Norm Abrams accent. He just doesn't have it, man. <laughs> I'm sorry. This old house from another dimension that has an asshole for a face. That's a niche show. It's, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> angry eyes, too. Yeah. But whole thing yeah. has angry eyes. Which, I mean, I guess that's understandable. Yeah. I do love that Steve shows up, basically takes care of business, kind of kicks butt, and then the entire crowd is just like, eh, bullshit. Yeah. Yeah. It is weird, too, that their reaction to Steve is just like, oh, Doctor Strange. They've all heard of him, but they don't believe in him. I guess it's before he was, like, seeking privacy or whatever. Because mm-hmm. by the time we get to Doctor Strange, he's, like, mind-wiping everybody who sees him. Mm-hmm. And at this point, he's just pushing them down. <laughs> the art in this is fucking great. It is Steve Ditko, and it is so stylized and really, really cool-looking. They hadn't really yet set what the visual language of Doctor Strange using his powers was going to be. So there's a lot of, like, his third eye opening on his forehead and the eye of Agamotto just, like, coming out of an envelope. And it's really weird and eldritch and just neat-looking and really innovative. And I really enjoyed that. Yeah, I liked it, too. I I like this Doctor Strange the way he's depicted, he looks, you know, older and kind of creepier and, you know, more like ma- yeah. magician-y. Yeah. He's still and, got those and... fucking orange dish gloves, though. I don't... Yeah, I don't really get the orange dish gloves either. It did seem that they were establishing him not so much as a hero. Like, I feel like the idea of him as a superhero was a little bit less codified at this point and that it was almost verging into the horror genre a little bit more. Mm-hmm. And we weren't necessarily supposed to like doctor strange and Mm. that makes me like him more (laughs) yeah kind of has to come in and take care of business and he's a big jerk about it using his magic to push people around (laughs) i wish he would do that more and maybe wipe their minds less these days Mm -hmm. yep fair well are you ready to get into the minutiae i think we must okay rick would you mind singing us in we got minutiae it's not the biggest part it's just minutiae like cory eating farts we got minutiae time to sweat the small stuff thanks rick and now i am on to my third and final manhattan it is an after dinner manhattan a bit of a nightcap as it were it is bourbon a little bit of brandy and a little bit of port and Peixot bitters. 
It's a slightly bitter drink, but it's uh, it's got some uh, night cappiness in it and makes a nice uh, counterpoint to the sweeter Manhattans that I've had earlier. And it's probably going to put me on my ass. Oh, man, that sounds tasty. It's pretty good. Mm. I've still got a citrusy oh, IPA. Good. Corey, mm-hmm. what was your pie not made out of steel in this issue? What metaphor did you enjoy most, much like you would enjoy a pie were it not made out of steel? Yeah, that's always a, a little bit of a tough one. There was a, a bit of um, uh, exposition in the main story on page six that I enjoyed, which is the phrase, adrift in a space that is not space. Mm. I mean, it was literally like space, but it <laughs> sounded good. Yeah, uh, I had one we touched on before, but it was Valkyrie uh, perhaps overestimating a child's capacity for doll repair. By Hella's dark touch, it cannot be. He restores himself as a child would make whole a broken doll? And she says it with a question mark at the end, and I think that's supposed to signify that she has just figured out the creature's secret. Mm-hmm. But I choose to think that she is second-guessing the veracity of her metaphor there. <laughs> that she's like, like, a child would make whole a broken doll? No, that's not right. <laughs> they don't do that. <laughs> they just no, break, they, they just, just take the shit. heads off of the dolls. Mm-hmm. They'd probably have to have their parent rep parent kids are bad at fixing things anyway that horse is an asshole i'm going to stab it now yep horse stabbing time in this issue of a defender's comic as in every issue of defender's comic there is one character who just has to be a sucker who has to act in a way that is counter to their previously established character or motivation in a way that furthers the plot in this issue who just had to be a sucker. He kind of does this a lot, but I went with Namor because he's like, I'm going to kill everybody. Or, no, no, I'll help some people. No, I'm going <laughs> to help everybody. No, I'm going to kill everybody. So, yeah. It was a little back and forth for me. Yeah, he. I had the same one and for the same reason. It. There's that weird thing where he wants to kill everybody on the planet, but save certain people and try to kill everybody on the planet in a way that's honorable? It kind of reminded me of, in the old, like, G.I. Joe specials, there'd be those very special episodes that were about, like, drugs and shit. And I remember there being one where it was Cobra teamed up with G.I. Joe to stop people from selling drugs. (laughs) And it's like, so wait, you have tried to flood and overheat and literally kill everyone on the planet if they don't allow you to rule them. But drugs are really wrong. Mm -hmm. I was kind of getting that vibe off of Namor a little bit. So as a kid, when you saw that, did the kind of dissonance from how Cobra normally would act? I imagine that stood out. I think it would have. I was pretty high at the time. It did. Even as a kid, that was just like, oh, okay. So wait, drugs are worse than planetary genocide i don't know about that yeah yeah so i i had the same sucker as you did i went with namor it's a pretty clear choice even within that four page story he goes back and forth like five times Mm -hmm. flip-flopping not unlike a fish (laughs) not unlike a fish yep sound effect what was your favorite sound effect (laughs) 
<laughs> oh man. I think from the main story, my favorite one was when Nighthawk fooled the man bat into crashing into the rocks. The man bat always makes his scree sound so he can do a sonar thing, but then he crashes into the rocks and so the sound gets hyphenated into scree org. <laughs> and it's just a funny sound. That was pretty good. I had a bunch to choose from. There was a sequence of them, again, in the main story, that was when Steve was fighting the desk centaur. We get a wadoom that is of a giant cosmic explosion. Then we get the Hulk fighting the Teletubby on the next page, and that makes a choom. Then we cut back to Doctor Strange, and there's a boom, and then... Back to the Hulk again, who makes a croom. So the Wadoom Choom Croom Boom was my uh, quartet of oom sound effects that I thought were pretty fun. That's pretty good. But I think my favorite is on page 50, and it's in the Namor story. And it is Namor as a two-gun mojo just blasting away with his death rays. It's a really fun panel. And when he is killing all of the aliens as they are on their knees begging for mercy it goes whap blap and a death ray making a blap noise is my favorite sound effect yeah it sounds goofy and menacing at the same time yeah pretty good and it actually dovetails nicely into favorite panel Corey, what was your favorite panel this is a tough one yeah Damn. If I have to pick one, I think I'm going to... And you do. I'm going to pick page 11 from the main story. That's uh, Rules of the Game, a.k.a. Johnny Three Balls. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. The Grandmaster is demonstrating his omnipotence by doing some Fushigi Ball fucking contact juggling. Pretty good. Pretty badass. Yeah. And we got like half a page of exposition under that as well yeah that was weird i was gonna i was gonna ask you about that this is you don't often see and also on page seven there was like a whole like third of the bottom page was was uh typewritten yeah i think that's for a number of reasons one is that's a that's kind of a gerber go-to especially earlier in his career you saw that in a bunch of the man thing comics and you would see that here and i think it also speaks to this issue being a rush job it is frankly faster to do writing than it is to do art so trying to illustrate all of the description that is happening at the bottom there I think just they were behind schedule and it was easier to just do it as uh, prose. The fact that this is a rushed issue is really spoken to by the fact that you have, again, three plotters and three inkers working on it. So I think that's kind of what was going on. Hmm. But also it is a stylistic thing that you see in a lot of earlier Gerber comics. I did not care for it, man. I found it jarring. I did like... I liked the way it was written. I know what you The writing was good, right? Yeah, and there's actually specifically, I think it's on that page, a, uh, oh no, it's on page seven. But as part of that, there's a description as Daredevil is identifying each of the defenders that he will be fighting alongside. Mm -hmm. His description of Valkyrie, he describes her as, she seems to have combined in her the most outstanding qualities of the other three, the raw might of the Hulk, the nobility of Namor, and the ethereal wisdom of Doctor Strange. 
I am called Valkyrie, she says softly. I like that as a description of Valkyrie, and it hadn't occurred to me that that's kind of what she is a little bit. I also particularly enjoyed that she gets none of Kyle's bullshit. (laughs) My favorite panel, I think, may have been the whap-blap silhouette of Two-Gun Mojo Namor. That was really, really cool looking. But other than that, the panel where Grot has kicked the shit out of the Hulk and is congratulating himself on what a good, good manslayer he is. And the Hulk responds by extending his arm out of the pile of rubble and flicking him like you would a paper triangle if you were playing that that football field goal kicking thing with your friend. It's just pretty fun. He just flicks him with one finger. And man, he takes off like a rocket. He really flicks him good. Yeah, and that's what puts him over the top. So I think we are to presume that that actually did kill him. Yeah, I (laughs) had conflicting feelings about that. I was like, oh, that's so funny and kind of cute. And Oh, wait, Dudley. Well, the good news is that weird little Teletubby in a diaper does show back up later to help his friend Desk Centaur try to blow up the sun. Oh, good. I think my other favorite panel was on page 56, the one that I call Steve coming through, which is Steve (laughs) using his powers to just uh, push down some local hicks. It's just Uh, so funny. That is so Stevie, man. He just can't (laughs) hey, guys, I got to actually get through there to do this thing to help somebody. He's just like, I don't have patience for this. I'm just going to mystically push you on the ground. Yeah, pretty great. Sartorially speaking, were there fashion choices in this issue that you found particularly worthy of highlight? Corey? Yeah, I asked for a little bit of assistance earlier and and just really how to describe this dude, but the guy that's the the hat or the hood ornament for the evil space horse? Yeah. Takor is all decked out in like, you know, red spandex, top to bottom, some big horns. I don't know, it's a good bad guy look. I liked it. It is a good bad guy look, and when you think about it, that dude himself is pretty much a fashion choice that the horse is making. Right? It's like, because the, the horse, horse is, is just like, wearing is that dude around on his back. That is just a particularly fancy hat, like that evil space horse is going to church in Atlanta on a Sunday. Yeah, yeah, or to see a horse race or something. I don't know. <laughs> pretty good. Yeah. I had that down. I also had uh, the little Teletubbies blue diaper. Like, (laughs) it's not a particularly intricate look, but you know what? I appreciate the fact that that little Teletubby is confident enough in his body to just wear that diaper around. And also a practical choice, because if you are going to be flicked across the universe like you were the paper origami football in a... uh, in a game of of paper football finger flicking. <laughs> Man, there's a steel pie. Like Ooh. you would have in your, uh, you know, class where you're supposed to study, but you don't have any structured class happening. Or access to a might, bathroom. I'm just saying if the Hulk flicked you that hard, you might shit yourself. So it's a good thing you're wearing a diaper. Yeah. Yeah, good call. And also, I am drinking all of your Manhattans because you're living in a whale's tummy right now, Corey. I know you're doing a Corey. good job. Jo- you're doing a good, good job. Um, yeah, <laughs> I thought of it as more of a speedo, 
but but the diaper thing works. Yeah, maybe it's a speedo. Either way, it's a good look. <laughs> it's a good look. It's confident. He's a confident yeah. little guy. Uh, also, I love the shit out of the costume that Namor wears during this era. He's got that fucking quilted dune vest that rehydrates him, and it's got those weird little water wings that come out under his armpits. Mm-hmm. It's a nice fucking look. Yep. Pretty cool. I mean, don't get me wrong. The Speedo is a good look, too. But the quilted vest, not bad. There's a reason that Michael J. Fox wore that thing all throughout the future. Corey, who was the best defender in this issue? And who was the worst offender? Let's see. Let's start with best. I'm going to go with Val. Yeah? Yeah. I mean, I don't feel great that the bad guy was a horse. Like, I would somehow feel better if it was humanoid <laughs> that she threw her yeah, sword and Yeah, no, killed. I know what you mean. The horse stabbing is a, is a rough, rough pill to swallow. Which is pretty weird because, you know, I eat animals and stuff, so I don't know why I feel more broken up about that than... Hey, you don't eat horses generally, do you? Not as far as I know. So maybe that has something to do with it. But But otherwise, like, she kicked, I feel like, the most ass. She did a great job, and I really appreciated the way that she was used in this issue and described in this issue. It's funny, this is towards the beginning of Gerber's run, and you can see the genuine affection and almost reverence he has for the Val character that doesn't really get followed through on in the rest of the way that she is depicted. Mm -hmm. But yeah, she did a good job in this issue. Who did you uh, have as your best? Well, I feel like the choice should be Daredevil. Because he did kind of save the world by cheating at a coin toss. But I loved Namor so much. I know that the (laughs) 47 abbed lizard kicked his ass. And then he tried to blow up the world. But he was just so goddamn charming as he was trying to destroy our planet that I just couldn't go with anybody other than Namor. Oh my goodness. That is a weird choice. But I see your point. I I can't justify it, but he was absolutely my favorite, and I think he was just the best. The best. Fair enough. Corey, those Plutonians, they had a gun. He saved the planet from them. From Yeah, he did. So, good job, Namor. No disputing that. I mean, granted, he was also going to then take that gun and lovingly polish it and use it to destroy humanity, but... But he didn't. As far as we know. Well, we're not destroyed. He must have done something right. Ah, touche. Conversely, worst offender. Uh, you're not going to like this, but I had Namor. No, I understand. Yeah. It's a fair choice. Yeah, kind of for the same reasons you had, but like just minus <laughs> the, if you take away the charm layer. <laughs> he got killed by... A 47 abbed lizard. Yeah, he got killed by a lizard with a lot of abs. I'm he... sorry. I'm sorry. That's not fair. That lizard only had 43 abs. Well, this still doesn't... Still a lot of abs. Still a lot of abs. Yeah, then he, you know, the whole wishy-washy thing. So, But more so in terms of effectiveness, I'm used to seeing him as a, a super effective, powerful character. Yeah. And he, he just didn't pull it off, man. He got killed, which was super weird to see. And so, no, bad job, that's, Namor. That's fair. I actually went with Kyle. It worked out okay for him, but the decision-making process in which he chose daredevil to be the last member of the team seemed like a really odd choice to me and one that was made without any real thought going into it especially considering that you're trying to save the entire planet here i feel like he chose daredevil the way that a small business owner would choose an it guy which is just like oh i know this guy 
So he's the choice. Like well, even weirder than that, like though, would be like the person that he saw. I'd be like, I got in a fight with this IT guy once. Not even once. It was. I think it was just specifically that it was the most recent because he had fought all of the Avengers before, so he could have picked any of those guys. That's true. It's like um, the last IT guy I got into a fight with. <laughs> it would be perfect yeah. for this job. It's just like the guy who is foremost in his memory. Like that. That he's just like. I'm. Like I said, it worked out great. But okay, Daredevil has his super senses. Nobody knows about those super senses. So. To Nighthawk's view, Daredevil is just a regular dude Mm -hmm. who doesn't have any powers. He's just a regular guy who has the strength of one strong man. That's half as good as a Nighthawk, which is terrible. It also kind of brings up the Grandmaster's poor decision-making skills and his inability to count to six. Because Nighthawk says that initially the Grandmaster wanted to choose the Squadron Sinister, which only has four members. And they lost before to the Avengers, so bad decision making there, too. But also, like I said, there's only the four members of the Squadron Sinister, which isn't even the five members of the Defenders. Let alone the six that he needs to compete in his game against Gambletron. So what the fuck was the Grandmaster thinking? I mean, he's not a defender, but if he was, he'd definitely be my choice, because bad job, man. Corey, we all know that the Hulk rules. But in this issue, what were the Hulk's rules? That is an excellent question. Um, Thank you. You're welcome. So I, I think that, you know, sometimes the Hulk's rules are obvious because he states them. Sometimes right. they're a little more subtle. Like and and we saw both in in this um, in the main story. The first rule, you know, that's the obvious one is is like when he gets zapped up into space and he's just like, hey, Hulk doesn't want to be here. Like that's not good. Hulk doesn't want to be where Hulk doesn't want to be. But oh. what I think is more interesting is the rule that was kind of like a lesson that that I think the Hulk is gonna learn maybe later, but probably not. And that's that just like don't judge a book by its cover. Ah. Like, that Teletubby kicked his butt. You know, I, I, I don't know if that's really necessary. This isn't a great Hulk's rules thing because he's not, I think, going to be able to process that. But I love the idea of him, like, taking that experience away and applying it to something later. So, like, next time, he's just going to try to preemptively beat the shit out of any Teletubby that he sees. No matter no matter what, yeah. Like, right. little green dude in a Speedo, smash. Done, yeah. Yep. Good call. Thanks. Um, I also was going to have Don't Judge a Book by its cover as the Hulk rule, so I'm going to switch mine up and change mine into Never Trust a House with an Asshole for a Face. Ooh. It's an important rule. It's a very specific rule, but uh, one that I think we would all do well to live by. Whether we're the Hulk, whether we're Doctor Strange, whether we are Rom the Space Knight, just if you see a house and it has a face that looks like a butthole, don't trust that house. That seems fair. Yeah. And that's the Hulk's rules. All right. All right. Well, I think that leaves us with only one question. Let's write some wongs. That's not a question. That's an imperative. That leaves us with just one imperative. Let's write some wongs. All right. Now, for the giant size issue, we can choose 
a date to find out what Wong is up to from any of the three dates that are of the primary story or the reprints. So uh, in either January of 1975, February of 1955, or May of 1964, what Wong's needed writing? Yeah, so I went with January of 1975. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as, as usual, it's been a busy month. There's a lot going on. You know, Doctor Strange keeps Wong pretty busy with all of his, his manservant and other duties. And it was also, you know, January, chilly, getting cold. And Wong was thinking, you know what we need? We need to go get some sunshine and uh, and have some fun because things are getting a little drab around here. He used his vacation fund and um, booked a little surprise trip, uh, invited Steve along, and they actually went to Disneyland because he had never been there before. He thought that would be an interesting experience, and they rode on um, Space Mountain. I'm pretty sure we had them going to Space Mountain together before. <laughs> oh, shit. That's okay. That's okay. Sorry. So anyway, now, yeah. Do you not... mean the Space Mountain that is in Disneyland or the Space Mountain that Ric Flair likes to use as a metaphor for his dick? I meant the Disneyland one. That's probably for the best. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Wong didn't take Doctor Strange to to Ric <laughs> To Flair. Ric Flair's dick. <laughs> no. I don't think so. Okay. Continue. So yeah, the uh Space Mountain opened on the 15th and you know, they got back Woo! from that. <laughs> this is a little Ric Flair. Uh... Yeah. They got back to uh, the Sanctum Sanctimonious a few days later on the 18th, and they were chilling out, and Wong flipped on the, the TV, and uh, it was the premiere of All in the Family. Oh. Ding! Asterisk. This is Future Hub with an editor's note. All in the Family did not, in fact, debut in January of 1975. Corey was thinking of the All in the Family spinoff, The Jeffersons. Thank you. Yeah, and so they, they sat around and watched it. But then they had to have a, you know, kind of a talk afterwards because, you know, in, in the past, Steve has made some incorrect assumptions that were wrong and Wong had to correct, right? Uh-huh. All kinds of stuff, kind of not great. You know, to Steve's credit, he took that to heart a little bit and has since begun to think of himself as a very socially and politically aware person. Hmm. So after watching that premiere of All in the Family with Wong, he was just kind of fuming a little bit about Archie Bunker. So Wong basically had to be like, no, Steve, it's okay. It's actually, you know, kind of funny. It's, it's, a, it's a satire. Yeah. It's, it's, it's skewering both liberals and conservatives. And, you know, that's kind of the whole point of it is to, you know, make fun of that stuff and find a little middle ground. And, um, you know, Steve didn't quite buy it, but they nonetheless kept watching uh, All in the Family as a, a Wong and Steve activity. Very nice. I think if I met Rob Reiner, it would be difficult for me to not keep calling him Meathead. <laughs> yeah, I mean, especially if he has, like, the hair and the, the, the facial hair from that era. Yeah, I, I don't think he does anymore, but I, I would still, like, I would keep doing it to the point where I feel like he would chuckle at first, and then it would get very old, and he would start to get very mad at me, and I would still keep doing it. Mm-hmm. It's probably for the best that I do not ever meet Rob Reiner, despite the fact that I love Spinal Tap. No, I could actually see that exact <laughs> scenario playing out, so it is maybe for the best. The Wongs that I felt needed to be written, or righted, also begin in January of 1975. January of 1975, or 1975 in general and beginning in January, was declared to be International Women's Year. 
And so when Steve Strange heard about that, he said, Wong, we have to get out of here. We're not allowed in this year. Oh, no. Wong tried to explain to him, but Steve was just like, No, it's fine. I don't bear them any will will, but this is their year. I'll just back us out of it. And so he time-traveled Wong and himself back to February of 1955. And when he got to February of 1955, he saw that a play called Silk Stockings was playing at the Imperial Theater. And Steve was super excited because this was not the first time that Steve had time traveled and he had previously visited the 90s. And he was like, oh, Wong, you are going to love Silk Stockings. It's a sexy little program about a couple of murder cops and they have such chemistry. And they went in and watched Silk Stockings and it was like, what, what is this, a Cole Porter musical? No, where's Mitzi Captor? I want to have some sexy double entendres about murder. Wong, this is terrible. So he time-traveled them away again, this oh. time to May of 1964. And they landed on May 2nd in 1964, and they were at a pro wrestling match where they saw Mad Dog Vashon was beating Vern Gagne. And Mad Dog Vashon defeated Vern Gagne for the NWA championship. And Steve was just like, oh no, a heel champion of the NWA? This will not stand. <laughs> he didn't stick around to see later in the month Vern Gagne won the belt back. So he, he was just like, well, we've got to get out of here. And Wong was like, Steve, Steve, calm down. We are allowed to stay in the year of 1975. We just should try to celebrate and learn more about the struggles of women in their battle for equality and really try to celebrate the women in our lives and, uh, and support them in any way that we can. And Steve was like, I don't like the sound of that, but at least Mad Dog Vashon won't be champion. All right. <laughs> and so they went back to 1975 in January and they watched the premiere of Wheel of Fortune. And I think that was a nice thing for them to both kind of chill out and do. Mm. And that was the Wong that needed to be righted. Very good. Thank you. I like me some Mad Dog Vachon pretty good. I thought he was a great heel. And uh, his uh, daughter, Luna Vachon, very fine wrestler as well. Good to know. Vern Gagne's son, Greg Gagne, also underrated in my opinion. Hmm. I don't know any of those wrestling people, but I trust your opinion. Oh, that's nice of you. You're welcome. Anyway, we got to wrap this up. We've been going on way too long and there have been some technical difficulties. And I feel like if we don't end this thing now, it'll never end. But... It has been a real treat doing this Giant Size Defenders episode with you and for you, our listeners. Thanks, Ooh, Corey. Thank you, everybody. And thank you. It has previously been established that perhaps, perhaps three Manhattans is too many. I would like to certainly solidify the assertion that six Manhattans is way too many. <laughs> you did a good job. I tried to do a good job. I hope it was enough for you. And I hope it was enough for you listeners. And I hope that someday, someday, all of you listeners out there will catch the wave of the future with us. Tighten up the defense and hang 10 on it. Cowabunga. Cowabunga. I just cheers myself.
Good job. <laughs> Thank you. If you'd like to get into touch with us, you can do so at ttwasteland at gmail.com. If you would like to follow us on the internet, then look up the words tighten up the defense. That's tighten, T-I-T-N, and all of the other words are spelled correctly. <laughs> You'll eventually find some shit about a Tennessee football team that I don't really care about one way or the other. So if you want to learn about them, you can do that. But I'd rather you didn't. I'd rather you learned about catching the wave of the future with us and hanging 10 on it. Yeah, we're on Facebook. Yep. And Twitter and Instagram. Yep. And in your hearts and minds. We're in there looking out saying, hey, how's it going? Pretty good. Catch the wave of the future with us. Mm-hmm. Hang 10 on it. Cowabunga. It's nice here in your heart. Yep. It's a large four-chambered heart, but I'm thinking about busting down the walls between some of these chambers and uh, really opening up the space, having more of an open floor plan thing. Mm. I probably shouldn't do that. That'd kill them, right? Probably. Okay, yeah, I'm not going to do that. Just going to have fun in this uh, this here four-chambered heart that you have because you're a mammal. Nice ventricle. Unless you're listening to this and you're not a mammal, in which case... How did you get those extra 36 abs? 37 abs. You got 43 of them. Nice job, lizard man. Nice job. I know I talked shit about lizard men in the past, but uh, I will say this for you. You guys have a lot of abs. (laughs) If you'd like to donate monetarily to our podcast, you can do so at patreon.com slash ttwasteland. If you do, you will get some some good feelings because we like you. Mm Mm-hmm. I mean, we probably like you anyway if you're listening to this, but if you're donating to us, then we like you, I think it's fair to say, more. Would you agree with that, Corey? (laughs) (laughs) Sure. Thank you. You'll also, uh, depending on your level of donation, receive certain rewards. Anyone who donates at any level, though, will receive access to a podcast that I host with my wife, Lisa, who is wonderful, uh, about Howard the Duck. That show is called What the Duck, a podcast most foul, but with a W because he's a duck. That's the full name of the show. That show comes out once a month and we talk about Howard the Duck and it's a real nice time. But uh, there are other levels of reward for people who donate at other levels and so... I sent out my first batch of physical rewards to people who donate at a level of uh, $10 a month or higher the other day. I'll get to the rest of those soon, but it was real nice. It felt good. I mailed some shit to Australia. Pretty cool. You know what Australia's got? Um, Brumbies. Yes. Brumbies. A Brumby is a wild horse and a fun word to say. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Thank you. (laughs) Goodbye. Goodbye.